the chair that you sit on is the experience that you have. I can read a PL, I understand operating metrics, I understand what customers want, I understand how to get the data, I kind of know how to lead and manage people. You know, Unilever taught me that when I was, you know, weenie weenie. All of those things um, you kind of sit on. And at some point you have to realize you can kind of stand up off the chair and the chair doesn't fall over, the chair comes with you. Hi there, I'm James Ashton. Transforming famous brands so that they're fit for the future is no easy feat. How do you do that in the retail industry when shops have been closed because of COVID, fashion is fickle, margins are tight, and a host of online competitors keep springing up? How do you do that when you're Marks & Spencer? This podcast invites leaders to discuss their big challenges, how they learnt to lead, and the advice they offer to others. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockteninternational.com slash gb slash insight. So to this episode, Katie Bickerstaff is the Joint Chief Operating Officer at Marks & Spencer. She's part of the top team tasked with arresting the decline of the retailer's clothing and home business while capitalising on the appeal of its expanding food operation and the shift to online. We discuss making daily improvements to MS's product range, stores and website, how she makes a four-day week work, career learnings from Dixon's, Dyson and SSE, and why she believes MS's new alumni network will benefit the business and its leadership. It's a great episode. I started the conversation by asking Katie about the additional responsibilities she's taken on as Chief Operating Officer of the group. There are a couple of new things that are on my plate now. The first is that I'm now running our clothing and home division. I've got Richard Price working for me, who's the MD of clothing and home. And I've also picked up responsibility for our international division as well. And that sort of dovetails very nicely in with the the role I've got in data and digital because I've got all the sort of website development and the digital and personalization work that we're doing and the database that we build for business um, and data science. So that's all sort of linking together into one place. So in that respect, I guess it's broader leadership and management required in that area. It's very interesting, Katie, because one of the little comments on that in the media was, oh, well, Katie's lost strategy, but goodness me, you've picked up quite a bit to counteract that. So you're not going to be idle. I think actually leadership's about strategy, right? It's about where do you think you're headed? So from a strategic perspective, how we build long-term relationships with our customers and build on the, the, the strength that our business has, how we lead our organization through the number of changes that we have to lead the organization through now and in the future, just, just because you know there are so many changes happening externally. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, how we plan and think about the way we position our business for the future. Those are all strategic things that continue wherever you work in the organization. And the strategy and transformation role centrally was much more about giving us a clear path through the pandemic and beyond for the whole organization. I guess now I've got sort of 
you know, 50% of the organisation where I need to make sure I make very clear we know where we're heading strategically and set that framework. So there's not a huge amount of change from that perspective. And there's an awful lot to deliver from a transformation standpoint as well, um, just in terms of making sure we do what we say we're going to do when we're going to do it. So that there's a lot to do there. And you took that full-time role, Strategy and Transformation Director, on last spring. So you've had a good year as a a full-time member of the leadership team as opposed to the non-executive director before. I'm wondering, what have you learned in that last year? Gosh, I joined in April last year in the middle of the first of our three lockdowns of various types. And I think, in a way, I was lucky because I'd been involved in the board for 18 months before, I knew quite a lot of people in the organisation. I've been out and about quite a lot in the operation. And I think that was very helpful. I think it's very hard when you join a business completely remotely, which is what you know people were having to do as new starters. I think that's very difficult. One of the things I've learned over the last 12 months, I think the first thing is that you have to have a very clear sense of where you're heading, particularly at a time when there is a huge amount of complexity, ambiguity and change in the external environment in which you're operating. That is particularly true in retail. It's very close to the customer. We were heavily impacted by the in and out lockdown situation, particularly because we have a hospitality business and we also obviously have a clothing and home business for periods of time that was deemed non-essential. So the first thing is being very clear and transparent in terms of what you're doing and what you're not doing is very, very important. I think that the focus on that became even more extreme during the very sort of steep and difficult times during COVID. The second is the way that you work and operate with the people who work with you and for you. You have to change slightly your management style, be more open, give more time, work in a slightly different way. Because again, you have to recognise people are wrestling with a whole series of things. They're looking at things for the first time. All of us were really, I think. We all had to learn to work in a very different way. Actually learning to work in a different way. Like this. Yes, like this. I mean, historically, we'd all have been in the office all the time, out and about all the time. And the fact is you have to learn to do things differently. And this has been actually, I found it really, really interesting and a really good way to work. So coming together for collaborative work, for strategy and planning, for business reviews, when doing end of year reviews, all of that sort of stuff, I think is incredibly important to be face to face with people. But actually, you can also get an awful lot of stuff done working remotely. You can bullet through a list when you're sat like this and it's very easy. And you also have a little bit more time to think and consider when you're not, you know, traveling in, traveling out, you've got a little bit more time to think and consider things, which I think has been quite useful. I think the other thing is the ability of people to pony up and do things differently at a time when the environment around them has made it very, very challenging. I have been astonished at the diversity, the capability, the can-do attitude the growth mindset of people I've worked with. It's just been extraordinary. A little example of that, and it's a, it's a very small example. Obviously, during the pandemic, people were queuing outside, you know, for, for grocery shopping. People were queuing everywhere, weren't they? Because there was a limit of numbers you could have in. 
Sure. And post the panic buying phase, we were very concerned about customers standing outside in the rain as the weather started to turn. During the summer, it was fine because the summer was amazing, right? But we were yeah. sort of concerned about it and gave that problem to sort of the digital team. And they came up with the book and shop technology on the app so you could book your slot. You didn't have to stand outside. So our most loyal and frequent customers could book and anybody that was in our Sparks Club could book. And the guys came up with that and launched it really, really, really quickly. I think about 900,000 customers used that over a 10-week period. I mean, just extraordinary. And doing something that in a way seems relatively simple, it's actually quite complex to do, but makes people's lives easier during a time that was quite difficult. I just thought there's just a really extraordinary example there of something really quick that people did. Yeah that enabled customers to live their lives more easily. And I think that sort of surprised me. I think out of any crisis, you can really change the way an organization feels and what it does. So those are just a few lessons I've learned during the yeah. during the pandemic. There are hundreds. I mean, I'll obviously have to write a book, which probably nobody will read or buy, but the extraordinary ability for people to just be decent and do the right thing and constantly produce good performance all the way through has been amazing yeah i also feel you know we've had a very strong duty of care people were facing into all sorts of difficult things whether it was homeschooling kids whether it was vulnerable because of health risks in terms of covid uh, changing the way that they worked we've got a lot of very young people working for us many of them live on their own there's a lot of mental health challenges through the lockdown we really tried to be really responsible. And I've been super conscious of that during the pandemic. And I think it just came into sharper focus, that need to be really straight, really clear, really transparent and supportive as well to make sure that, you know, people were at work feeling good about being at work and make it safe for people to come to work, right? Yeah. It's really important. But you mentioned the C word crisis there, because obviously through all that and that increased duty of care, good leaders have in their mind the last 15 months, good leaders don't like to let a crisis go to waste. There's costs come out of the business. There's jobs come out, particularly at head office. And, you know, the latest set of results, you're talking a lot about reshaping the property footprint and so on. So do you think in some ways the crisis has been good for m and Listen, I think the whole thing has been extremely difficult for the country in general and for everybody that's been impacted by it i think everyone's been impacted by it in some way shape or form i think what it does is like any crisis and the 2008 financial crisis was the same right it makes you really sharpen your resolve and your strategic focus it makes you focus on the things that are going to really be relevant in the future and it enables you to modernize the business and take the business forward. I think we're a fascinating business because we're right at the heart of the UK. When I told people I was going to work for Marks and Spencers, you know, you get this, oh my goodness, I love this, I love that, that frustrates me. Of course you do. And we're right at the heart of what it means to live in this country. And we have been for a very, very long time. And that's a position of immense privilege, but it's also a position of immense responsibility. What you do when you're faced with a crisis of the scale that we were faced faced with, we had 50% of our business shut for quite a long period of time during the last 12 months. You have to step up and make those decisions, the right decisions. And some of those are brought to a head because of a crisis. Some of those were kind of bubbling in the background and are brought into sharper focus because you're in this crisis and you're trying to make very quick mm. decisions. 
And some of those were coming towards you anyway, but have accelerated more because the way that customers behave has changed. And so there's a combination of those things happen. It's a kind of triangular thing that happens around you. But at the heart of those things, it's about being brave, not walking past difficult decisions, being very responsible in the way that you do things, recognising the place that you have within the UK and globally, but within the UK particularly in terms of, of the impact you have on society, and just making sure you do those things properly. And I do think it's enabled us to accelerate some things that needed to happen. Now, we'd already talked, James, way prior to pandemic about making changes in our property estates. All retailers are doing that because the way the high street is, is changing. And so we already announced that and we've just continued with that during the last 12 months. And of course, more customers now than ever are shopping digitally and are changing the way that they do things. What's been interesting is kind of as lockdowns eased, we've seen a lot of people going back to the estate and going back out shopping because they've sort of missed it. But underlying, there is a shift towards online shopping and digital relationships. Sure. You know, we should be in a position to take advantage of that. And that's what we've done strategically. I always like an MS to the England football team. Everyone has an opinion, whether it's on the formation, what on earth is the manager doing? It's that sort of thing. And the tough narrative, Katie, from your critics, from observers, is that this is a company that will really struggle to recapture former glories for successive managements. The pot of gold is, is just there. It's just, why is it different this time, do you think? I think it's different because there are some things that we really know are really, really important that we are going to really, really strongly lean on through this transformation process. They're pretty simple things. The first thing I would say is that we have enormous permission from our customers who love the brand. They are frustrated by the brand as well and the business, of course, but we have enormous levels of permission, which is just a fantastically privileged position to be. And I think that's very important. Secondly, we know that product is at the heart of our business, whether that's the fantastic food products that we have that are unique to us, which have brilliantly high standards, that are sourced ethically, that are grown with love to develop with love and care. We really do have extraordinary products. Or whether it's in clothing and home, where we were the first people to bring machine washable cashmere to the UK. We put Lycra in denim. We have done a whole load of really clever technical development that allows you to machine wash and just hang stuff up and then you don't have to iron it. All of those things we've done really, really good work on. And again, we source that product with love and care. We're very careful where we source it from. We're very careful about our environmental footprint. So the first and foremost part of our strategic imperative is to be absolutely brilliant at product. From the very point that we source the raw materials all the way through to the way that we put the product in front of our customers and the way that we talk to them about our product. And that, I think, is something that differentiates us from our competition and we need to really work on. The second area is making your interactions with our business really seamless. And, you know, we, we are frustrating. And I know there are things that we don't do very well. And so making sure that wherever you interact with MS, it's super easy and super seamless. It's not rocket science. For example, you need the best website. Correct. A really simple, easy to use website, a really simple, easy to use app, a really simple in-store experience. 
pay how you'd like to pay. But Katie, you must have been tearing your hair out when you came to MS because you've probably used it as a customer and you've read all the cuttings. I mean, Laura Wegiri, you know, going back many, many years, probably a book in the MS website. I have to say, the website, our conversion is pretty high and it's starting to really improve. And our NPS is improving as well, which is really, really important. And we've got a lot of metrics in place to measure our progress and to measure our ability to make that interaction, that experience better and more effective and you know one of the things I'm obsessed about is every day focusing on how you can get better not how much better you are and it's a thing that drives me personally but also drives me in terms of looking at the business in the last 12 months we've done a huge amount of work on the app it's incredibly intuitive we've got three and a half million app customers it's really quick and easy. It's a really simple checkout process. And every day we're looking at it going, oh, we can make that better. We can make that better. We can make that better. You know, it's your football analogy is you have to be every day, just those micro improvements. And some of them feel really small, but actually have a massive bow wave of yeah, experience yeah. improvement for customers. But we know where all the bodies are buried and we know where all the things are that we need to sort out from a sort of seamless perspective. And you're right, there's an awful lot to do. I see it as opportunity. You look at the fruit hanging and you think, oh, we could sort that, we can sort that, we can sort out. And then you have to prioritise which you sort out when. There are two other things that I think strategically are very important. So that seamless piece. The way that we source products, we have plan A, which is our, I don't believe there's plan B for the planet. We have plan A right at the heart of everything that we do in the organisation. We are really good at that. And we probably don't tell customers enough about what we do. And not only does that matter now to our shareholders, but it matters to our customers. And frankly, it matters to all of us because we all would like the planet to be around for a very long time. And anything that we can do to make sure we don't have kids sewing our, our product, to make sure that we grow cotton organically, to make sure that we source things very carefully. I think those are really, really important things. And we think those are important things. And we think they are increasingly relevant to customers. We're all really into this now in a way that we weren't. 10, 15 years ago. The final piece is around building an ecosystem. And so we have a huge number of very loyal customers. We know quite a lot about them. We have a lot of customer data and insights. And being able to build a long-term personalized relationship with those customers is just incredibly important. And the vehicle that we're using for that is Sparks, which is our sort of membership scheme and linking ways to pay and linking what your purchases are and recognizing and rewarding purchase behavior and giving you stuff that's personalized and relevant for you is very, very important and even more important now in this market. And again, when I talk about our ability as an organization to do that and the permission levels that we have to enable us to do that, I'm very excited about that. So those are kind of four things that give me hope in the football analogy will win the Euros. We'll give it a few weeks, Katie. I'll come back and ask you. Just to go back to the product point, I'm putting my Daily Mail hat on again here. I've not been there for a while, but I think there are, of course, people want it ethically sourced, but the common criticism is who is that M&S clothing customer? It's got to fit well. It's got to be the right size. And those all seem to be the things. That seems to be the areas where you've been left behind. You certainly get the points for sustainability, but actually it's look and feel, the fashion of it, that is where the company struggled. And I think we're starting to see that change. We've got quite a strong performance in a number of those key categories now where I think people are starting to reappraise the business. Denim is an extraordinarily successful category for us. It's been extraordinary. We also have a range of products called Good Move, 
which are sort of fitness clothing, really, and sort of casual stuff for sort of loafing about in the house. And that's performed extraordinarily well. Now, of course, people are all dressing very differently now, right, James? So the, yeah. the formal sort of suit days are probably past us and the very, very, very formal wear is past us. But dresses and things like that also trading very, very well. And we've done some really interesting collaborations. One of the collaborations we've just done is Ghost to M&S. And people started to reappraise the business. And if I look at the mix of customer demographic shopping with us now, both online and in store, versus a few years ago, I can start to see that behavior changing. I can also see transaction mm. behavior changing, which for me is the first indicator that we're starting to get some of that right. Now, this is a, this is a marathon, right? Use a sports analogy. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Yeah. This is a five-day test match, not a 2020. I can use a cricket analogy because I know a bit more about that. But but it has been an MS marathon. It depends what mile of the race you've joined at, Katie, I suppose. That's the question. So look, you've gathered all that together. And I guess these different pillars are things that you've been thinking of in the last year or so at MS. What does it become? Because at the moment, MS is a $9 billion revenue business. There's obviously lots of growth internationally. It's roughly two-thirds food one-third clothing and home, I think. And then store-wise, about a 1,000 stores in the UK, a quarter of those are what you call full line. So it's food and clothing. It feels like there's a lot less of those and a lot of the, maybe more of the food. Maybe it's just fewer stores altogether. What does it look like in a couple of years' time? Definitely would be fewer stores, although that wouldn't mean we wouldn't open some new stores because there's a sort of geographic spread point, right? Sure. Making sure you have the key markets covered, particularly in food. I also think actually our stores are an interesting competitive advantage against pure play because they're really good drop off and pick up points for customers. And a lot of our online volume goes through reserve and collect. And we've made that really quick now. It's like 45 seconds to pick up a parcel in our automated reserve and collect. So you're in, you're out, which is quite, mm. quite important. Share of business online and .com will definitely increase. We've been very public about that, and I expect to see growth in that area. I also expect to see growth in the clothing and home business as we start to push this range back through, start to kind of change the way that customers feel about our business and the mix of our products. And we're seeing some growth in some areas that historically we wouldn't have been particularly well known for. So things like home has really performed very, very well over the last 12 months and we've got some fantastic products coming through there so you know this is why product is so important mm. because if you have a product that people want they will come and buy it and they will choose james where they buy it yes and you just have to make sure that you can fulfill it in whatever channel they choose to buy it as easily as possible definitely more customers will choose dot com than stores because we've seen that growth you, you know you know you've worked in the sector long enough it's mm. been growing by two, three percent every year. And then in the last 12 months, of course, it's grown like topsy because people haven't been able to go shopping or have been too frightened to go shopping or what have you. And so that's grown. And I expect that dot-com growth to continue. But I think that stores will still be relevant. And it's interesting. So clothing and home does grow. It doesn't grow every year. And people will say, oh, this will just go down and down. But you're saying there is going to be growth here where in absolute terms, in terms of market share, don't write us off yet. Don't write us off yet. That's all I can say. Good, good. I haven't written this off. No, I no, no, clearly. Tell me about M&S Family, because this is one of your other projects you fitted in the last year. I'm surprised you didn't have one of these already. This is kind of an alumni network, if you like, designed to plug former staff back into the business. Now, I thought you'd have had enough advocates and critics anyway, but you want to listen to them, connect with them and so on. I'm interested in what that does for the leadership, for the top tier. Look, there were lots of informal 
alumni networks. We've got quite a lot of long service in the organization. You're at work a lot, right? So you make a lot of friends at work. And so there've been a lot of informal connections that had gone on in the background for a long, long time. Felt very strongly a couple of things. The first thing I felt was that the people who've worked for us are our greatest advocates, but also our greatest critics. And I think that's quite useful. Secondly, those former colleagues are also really good sources of future colleagues because they also have networks of their own. And also some of them go away, do something else and then want to come back and work for us. We call them boomerangs because they, they, they spin away and then they spin back into the family. So we really wanted to get a place where we could bring former colleagues together to share ideas, to share feedback, to get access to resources, to help us with looking after our current colleagues as well, because there's tons of experience out there, to test new products on, to ask for opinions on customer service, to ask for opinions on things that we're doing digitally, where we know that in a way they're the least tame audience. They'll just say how it is, right? Because they've worked for us before. It's been really fantastic. We launched it just at the end of February. We've already got 7,000 people formally signed up. There's lots of stories people tell. Some of it's a social thing. It it reignites colleagues together who've worked together before. Oh my gosh, you're in there. Let's get together. And and that's really nice. And I I feel quite strongly that when you work for a business like M&S, it almost goes into your DNA. It's sort of runs like blood through you. You don't lose those ties very quickly. And so it it feels like a good thing to do to bring that family together. We've also had quite a lot of job applications come through from the alumni. So it's a great way where people have perhaps gone off and decided to go and do something else and then think, oh, I'd quite like to come back. They've been able to apply for jobs through the alumni network as well, which is really helpful because we kind of know a bit of background to people and, and can see that background, which is useful. Just on that point, Katie, is hiring a challenge? Is that partly the reason you've done it? It's not at the moment, touch wood, we're, we're very lucky. We're pretty well regarded as an employer. I think we are genuinely pretty good to work for. You know, we expect people to work hard. We expect them to deliver a good performance, but we're also quite kind and we look after our colleagues and we're Mm. very compassionate and we do the right thing. It's going to be interesting post-pandemic as we reopen all of our stores. We're we're absolutely fine at the moment for colleagues. But I think what's going to be interesting is as you get nearer Christmas and you get into the Christmas peak and you've got hospitality crying out for people as well, how many people we have within the UK available for work will be an interesting thing we need to keep an eye on. I think everybody's in the same boat. You've seen the press at the weekend. There was an awful lot about sort of lack of EU resource in the UK because obviously people have gone home and then they're now stuck at home because it's very difficult to get back in. Mm. And I suspect some of those colleagues have decided to go and live and work somewhere else. Um, These are kind of the consequences of the combination of Brexit and the pandemic and the influence. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown, on the challenge of hiring and retaining the best people. My number one priority as leader of the Lockton business in the UK is attracting talent. And I don't see that changing for the foreseeable future. To me, attracting talent is all around 
articulating the opportunity. And that's not just in terms of the role, but also in terms of the future roles that people can actually aspire to and making it clear that they can see a very clear channel, even as you're going out and looking to employ these people for how these opportunities will develop. And therefore they can see that they can succeed and enjoy the role that you're putting forward. I think to have a diverse, inclusive and rounded organisation, you have to also instill that within what you're doing from a recruitment and attracting talent perspective. It's absolutely critical to our business. We know obviously about the the JV with, with Ocado and so on. I'm interested in the store footprint and your focus has, like a lot of the big brand retailers, the opportunity I think is in you know more out of town, good parking, destination, come and have lunch and, and so on. And as a result, the high street is suffering. Is there something more that, whether it's government or local civic leaders, need to do to make the high street appeal? I mean, listen, everybody is having this debate at the moment. There's been debate about the rates and what can happen with the rates going forward to encourage people to be in the high street. You know that, you'll have seen that. That's been played out by a lot of people. I think it depends on which high street it is, right? Because there are high streets and there are high streets. What has definitely happened is fewer people are going into town centres. Fewer people are going into town centres for work on a daily basis. Fewer people are going into town centres in general and that is both good and bad town centers and so where you see urban regeneration projects work where accommodation is put right in the heart of the city center as well as restaurants shops etc these are some of the things that are broader than just can look at rates and can you look at supporting the high street more they are much broader urban development projects that pull together a series of sort of agencies to make those things successful. And there are a few in city centres where you see what's happened and you kind of go, I understand what you're trying to do here and has actually made it much more vibrant within a city centre, which typically at the weekend would have been, shoppers would have come in and gone and then post-COVID probably wouldn't have come in. But actually there's a lot of people living there from a sort of residential perspective. So I think there's an awful lot that can be done to support it. But, you know, you also have to factor in the way that people want to live now. That is changing and it's changing. It's changing because of dot com. It's changing because the way that people live their lives is changing, you know, even over the last year versus the last 10 years. So you've got to be mindful of that as well. But I I don't think just retailers can Mm. solve it, James. I think it's a broader government and council related decision about how do you regenerate these these town and city centres. You know, you know the high streets that are yeah. successful and the high streets that yeah. aren't. And the high streets that are successful, that are still successful, everyone wants to be on. And there are other high streets which, you know, really need a big regeneration. Absolutely. And the choices you've had to take. I mean, you know, I'm from West Yorkshire. I know that there used to be a store in Dewsbury. There used to be a store in Huddersfield. These centres want to keep an M&S there, but then you have to make a call based on the decisions they've already taken and the people who are coming or not coming anymore. I want to talk a little bit about you and how you got here at M&S, Katie. So to go right back, Unilever graduate trainee, and then an early job was with Dyson. I'm interested, as you think about you know, going up through organisations and taking on more leadership responsibility. What do you learn from someone like a James Dyson? The first thing to say is you learn something in every single job that you do. And it comes back to that comment I made earlier on, you know, focus on how you can get better, not how much better you are in everything. And having a really 
open and attentive mind. So you sort of soak up things that surround you. And some of those things you soak up consciously, actually, and some of those things you soak up unconsciously because you, the sort of things happen around you and you, you sort of observe them. James is super, super clever, really, really innovative, very commercial, but also very clear. Clear. That clear word is so loaded and you started smiling when you say it. I mean... Yeah, I said it because... He has quite strong opinions. And that can be polarising, right? But one of the things he was always really, really clear about was the design standard of the product and the look and the feel of the way that product is communicated and has never ventured from that. And it was the rules, right? And the guardrails were really clear. And I think generally in organizations having really clear guardrails is really really helpful and his guardrails were really clear and i really admired that in him the guardrails were super clear and and that's that's a lesson that i took uh, that's a really good lesson because actually when you walk away from those guardrails the product becomes less effective the brand impact is less strong etc etc so you know you learn you learn from everywhere you work and just briefly on summerfield i'm going through the greatest hits now katie you were human resources director the chairman said he wanted you to be managing director you said in an interview a while ago i didn't think i could do it and said no but he said of course you can you start next week i'm just interested in your reflections now on the 33 year old then would you be saying no to these jobs now do you know, it's a really good question, and I have thought about it a lot. Somebody asked me a, a few weeks ago, does luck come into success? And I think you do build your own success to a point. The more that you deliver, you work hard, you deliver, you do what you say you're going to do, you think about what you're going to do, you do the very best job you can. People do notice those things, and that matters, right? It matters to be consistent in terms of performance. But some of it is a bit of luck. And I think if I, I look back on it, I think I felt at that point a bit young to be in that scale of a job. Thought, gosh, I need to have all of these other experiences. Not quite sure what they were, actually, but all these other experiences <laughs> to be able to do this job. And then I kind of realized afterwards, the chair that you sit on is the experience that you have. So I, you know, I understand, I can read a PL, I understand operating metrics. I understand what customers want. I understand how to get the data. I kind of know how to lead and manage people. You know, Unilever taught me that when I was, you know, weenie weenie. All of those things um, you kind of sit on. And at some point you have to realise you can kind of stand up off the chair and the chair doesn't fall over. The chair comes with you. And that was one of those moments in my career when I was worried if I stood up, the chair would fall over. And what the chairman said to me at the time, John von Schmeckerton, he said, don't worry, it, you'll be fine. And I kind of went, will I be fine? And then I realised afterwards I was fine. The chair came with me. It didn't. Somebody didn't nick the chair. It wasn't like musical chairs, you know, where the chair disappeared. The chair comes with you. And it, it, it sounds bonkers now. I look back on it, you know, like 15, 20 years ago, and I think, for God's sake, what on earth are you thinking? That was the first job I had where the buck really did stop with me. You know, that was it. It was, it was all on show. And I was, oh, my goodness me, this is quite a big decision. And I don't regret it now, but I, I kind of understand why I felt like that. And I think people go through that. And, you know, we're all human, right? We all want to do the very best we can. And we want to make sure we're equipped with the ability to do that. But 
interestingly, when I dial it forward, it's it's made me more confident about pushing people forward quite early on. Because, you know, and I kind of use the analogy now where I say to them, it's okay, the chair will come with you. And they're like, really? How do you know? And I said, well, I kind of know because I'm a bit longer in the tooth now. It's quite an encouraging way in which you do it. I mean, it, it could be very much a sink or swim type way, couldn't it? But I guess that's not how you get on being the boss any more than they get on as no. the person coming up through an organisation. No, you just say, listen, you know, those things come with you. And the way I always say it, as I say, look, it's like a T shape. The bottom of the T is the chair you're sitting on. It's all the experience that you've had that's got you to where you've got to. That will never go away. It will always be filed away and it will always be there and you'll be able to pull on it. And what you do when you do a new job is you add some more bits to the bottom of that, which you say you're sitting on almost a bigger chair, a more substantial chair. But the top of the T and the sort of top of the chair is the way that you do things. And of course, you have to shape your behaviour to help you as you get more senior. You have to learn to do things slightly differently because, you know, you go on a board for the first time and that that's different. And, you, you know, there are things you have to do that are different to what you did when you, you know, you started as sort of as a graduate trainee or whatever. And so I try and use that analogy and I try to be quite specific about what this job will give you is these things. So be comfortable that you don't know what that is yet. That's okay. I'm not just going to skip over a decade. You were at Dixon's for 10 years looking after UK and Ireland. The big, big job there, as well as I suppose electrical sales shifting online, was the merger into car firm warehouse. A lot of jobs to take out. You have to look people in the eye and say, I'm really sorry your job doesn't exist anymore. Now, that's quite character-forming for a leader, I guess. Yes, it is. Whenever I think about any leadership job involves sort of good and bad news always, because it, it just does. And there are decisions that you have to make that you really don't want to make, but you just have to do them because they're the right thing to do. And at Dixon's, we shut a lot of shops and we made quite a lot of very difficult people decisions. But we started to make those in 2008, just after the Lehman's collapse. And those, you know, those things were about as popular as a turkey voting for Christmas. But what you do is you make the decision and then you're really kind in the way that you execute it. And you explain it and you're decent and you look people in the eye and you shake them by the hand. And you don't boot them out the door in an unceremonious way. And I think there is no leader of any big organisation globally that's never had to have one of those conversations or do one of those things. I worry when people go, oh, no, it was easy, because it's not easy, because you are on, on that day, you are changing somebody's life. You are changing. You're not, you're not saving a life. You know, we're not, we're not like these amazing medics who've got us through this horrendous pandemic. We're, we're, not, we're not like the teams that have developed the vaccines. You know, we run a business, right? We run a business for our shareholders and for our customers and for our stakeholders. But the way that you do these things, you just have to handle it with dignity and respect and decency. And I find people respect you more for making a tough decision than for not making a decision. Can I ask you about the one that got away? You could have been running a big energy company now. It was going to be two energy retail energy providers bolted together, possibly in the FTSE 100, possibly in the 250. The deal didn't happen. The businesses were sold. You were there. You were appointed. Is there a sense of regret? You just have to dust yourself off. And as you talked about, you know, luck and opportunity, you just have to get looking for the next thing. 
I don't have any regrets at all. I, I was very lucky to be part of the team at SSC. I was on the board there for eight years as a non-exec. And then Alistair and Richard, who was the chairman at the time, asked if I would look at the retail business. And pretty early on looking at it, I I didn't think that the merger with NPower would, would work. There were a series of issues, particularly in NPower, that became more apparent, I think, with, with deeper diving. And so we were left with a couple of options. And genuinely, I'm interested in doing the right thing. And doing the right thing was selling the SSC retail business, which we did. And we sold it and we managed it really effectively. And that was a really, really interesting experience. I've not sold a business before. So that was a really, you know, it's a new experience for me. And, and it was really interesting. Another one for the book. Another one for the book. Another one for the book. I guess I'm a bit longer in the tooth now. And I don't notch things up in terms of, oh, I, I, you, we could have been on the footsie, we could have done this, we could have done that. I notch it much more in terms of that's really, really good and interesting experience. I work with some really interesting people. I learned about a sector um, over both my time as a NED and subsequently that I didn't know anything about when I joined the board. And I find that really, really, really interesting. And some of the skills I learned doing that have been really relevant to this job. I'm very lucky. I get to work with really talented people. I get to learn new stuff every day. I get to make a difference. I get to, to wear fantastic product. I get to eat fantastic product as part of my job. I'm very, very lucky. And stuff comes along and, you know, you, you grab those opportunities and you crack on with them. So there's no, there's no regret there at all. There's no sort of hidden, I'm not no. sort of sitting in a cupboard weeping. It's just a, a fantastic experience. I see that. And in the current role, Katie, are you now auditioning for the CEO role? Oh, God, no. I don't think there's any auditioning going on. I'm just trying to get my job done. I've been in this job eight days. <laughs> so, look, we've got, we've got a lot to do. So you've got a 100% record? Yes, hopefully. Um, we've got, listen, we've got a lot to do here. I just really want to make the things that I'm looking after as successful as I possibly can to work with the people that are in the team that are, are really, really good at what they do, to make our customers proud to shop at MS, to make our colleagues even prouder to work for MS than they are already, and to get this business in shape so it can be around for another 137 years. That's my job. 137-year-old company, the vast majority, I would say, of people that go through the doors, click online every day are women. Surely it's time that M&S had a female chief executive. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, listen, I'm a massive sponsor of diversity in our organisation. We do a pretty good job of it. We've got a very diverse team. We have an enormous number of female colleagues working for us. We have lots of women and lots of men shopping with us, actually, across the organisation. And we have incredibly diverse customers, which is fantastic. As always... The very, very best person has to take the leadership job, regardless of their diversity or their background, it has to be the very best person to do the job. And that's that's a decision that's way off, right? We've got to crack on with what we've got in front of us. I'm very lucky to work alongside Stuart. We get on brilliantly. He's done an absolutely outstanding job with food and will continue to do so, I know. We've just got a lot to get done. We're in a hurry and we owe it to our colleagues and we owe it to our customers and we owe it to our shareholders to do the very best job we can and that's what we're here to do absolutely one of the things that you've talked about in previous interviews katie i think is really interesting i think you've observed a four-day working week for getting on for 10 years now possibly more yeah 
Tell me about the thinking about that. Some people would say, well, is it really possible to be a part-time boss? I've done it now for a very long time. You have to be super organised. And the way that I do it is that I'm either at home or in stores or visiting or in the office four days a week. And then on a Friday, I take my kids to school, which I don't think is crime. I pick my kids up from school and there are various events that occur that I quite like to go to. But that doesn't mean I don't answer the phone or don't look at emails and don't do all those sort of things. So I tend to sort of catch up on a Friday. But it gives me choice about when I catch up and when I don't catch up. And that matters to me. I don't think there are any senior management jobs now that aren't really, at some point, you're looking at stuff seven days a week, right? We're a seven day a week, 24 hour a day operation. And that's what you do. But I've always done that because it gives me the freedom to spend some downtime with my kids and not feel that I don't have the opportunity to do that during the week. And it really matters to me to do that. Everybody that works for me kind of knows that I've always got my phone with me. You know, I'm always having a check through stuff. There's never, ever been a problem with it. And again, it's about guardrails, right? So the people who work for me know whenever they need to get hold of me, they can get hold of me. Then on a Friday, they just think about it for 30 seconds before they do. That's all that happens. Because they think, will it wait? Or maybe it won't wait. And that's it. Yeah, of course. So it's like sending an email that says, well, please don't answer this email today. But you, then you've gone and read it. And so, you know. Well, of course I do. And that's the way it is, right? And I'm, I'm a realist about this. But I think, listen, the way that we work now has to be more flexible. Because it has to be more flexible to be more inclusive. And I've always been a massive advocate. I've judged the power part-time. I've been a massive advocate of flexible working. And by flexible working, I don't mean, you know, rocking at 11 o'clock and rock home at 2 I mean, having flexibility to be able to do your job at times that suit you. And I am a results person, not an hours present person. I've got people who work for me who log off at five o'clock, go and do some stuff and then reappear at eight o'clock at night. That's up to them. If it suits them, it's up to them. You know, you, yeah, yeah, people work yeah. in different ways. You know that. So flexibility and flexibility, and, and that's been enhanced through lockdown, I suppose. Katie, I've covered most of it. What are your takeaways for leaders of the future? I think... Management and leadership are very different things. And in leadership, you have to be present. You have to think strategically. You have to be able to make difficult decisions. You have to be able to take people with you. You have to have a guiding hand on the tiller. I think that's very, very important. Being calm under pressure. People need to be able to come to you for advice, for input. Hard work, but being decent and being kind. You can make difficult decisions, but you can make difficult decisions in a decent way. And I think that's very, very important. Really thinking how you can improve things every day every single day is an opportunity to grow the business and to make things better and to not walk past things and i think that matters and the only final piece of advice i would give to people about leadership is the camera's always running you know when you're in a leadership position everybody really thinks and observes what you do so it's really important so if you turn up at a meeting and you haven't pre-read and you're all a bit chaotic People really see that and they go, God, we're a bit worried now. And so I really think that's very important that anybody that's listening to this that wants to be a leader in the future really think about being present, being prepared, being organised, you know, all of those things. Uh, it really matters. Great. And the camera's certainly running today. Uh, Katie, thanks so much for the conversation. James, lovely to meet you. And thanks for looking after me today. See you soon. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. For more retail leaders, you can dive into the Leading Archive to hear Mark Livingston from Pharmacy to You, Leon's co-founder, John Vincent, and Fortnum and Mason's recently departed boss, Ewan Venters. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternational.com slash gb slash insight. And of course, check out leadingpod.com. More episodes coming soon.